Hello and welcome to Real Talk Intervention, episode number 19, the data-driven classroom episode. Oh so, boy, data. Yeah. yeah so welcome back, Stephanie. We um, have been off for a little while. Apologize to our myriad of podcast listeners. Hey, we have 541 listeners. So here's the thing about that. We have 541 robots (laughs) who have downloaded our podcast. You don't know that. There could be 541 interested people listening right now. I am able to look at, at statistics to see you know, how many people are visiting our blog, how many people are downloading our episode. And Stephanie and I are always, you know, really motivated by the, the tens of people who listen to our podcast episodes every, every, every month. I appreciate every 10 of them. <laughs> but, you know, on this last podcast, you know, we suddenly got 545 um, listens. But when I, when I, dag- I dug in a little bit deeper, I'm pretty sure these are um, – robots from india stephanie the so I, I what i really think is we need to we need to lean in to the indian robot theory and uh take the podcast in the direction that our listeners uh, want it to go all right i'm going to start with this this is my message to our new listeners zero one one zero 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 one 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 zero zero one one zero zero one one zero and i'm pretty sure i just called for a robot uprising to take yeah, over the, the nuclear world. strike the nuclear strike is coming so, soon sky has my fault my bad yeah. And if for those of you who I don't know if this interests you, or Stephanie, but you know I did some research into why in the world somebody you know would pay people to pretend to download episodes. But apparently, this is a thing that you can pay companies to go to your website and give you traffic, so that you know if you were the kind of podcast that was trying to get sponsors, this would make you look like oh you have more pool, and so that they would pay uh, more money for your sponsorship posts. But in order for people to not get suspicious, these robots have to subscribe to all sorts of different sorts of podcasts, big ones, little ones. Otherwise, people would be like, hey, wait, those are robots. So um, yeah, we've got uh, we've got a quite a large percentage of robot listeners. So we will be working on our we'll be working on our robot classroom podcast very soon. (laughs) I think that there are 545 interested teachers out there that want to know more about data driven classrooms because exactly what people want to do on their weekend is sit and listen to people talk about numbers but we have been off for a little while it was a little bit of an unexpected hiatus life came in the way of uh, for both of us so we have been did not keep up with our um, episode recording schedule but we are hopeful that that is not going to continue to happen i'm really hoping this whole life thing is going to stop for me (laughs) wait 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 wait. don't um, tell that to the robot overlords because they might (laughs) oblige (laughs) so but we are back and we are talking about the data-driven classroom we're going to have some conversations about what does it mean to actually utilize data in your classroom and we're going to kind of piggyback on how do you really how do you really like read and and use data like what do you really do with it you know especially if you're a star tested subject you know you've got you know statewide data you've got percentiles you've got all this sort of information and you really just don't know where to even start start with it. I also would like to direct people, we did have a conversation about data that erupted a little bit from the different scale score standards that happened with the star test with our different subpopulations so that a, you know, a scale score that would pass a general education student may not be a scale score that passes a special education student. And there's statistical reasons for this that sometimes look a little bit problematic to those of us who are actually in the classroom and actually dealing with this data. So we want to talk a little bit about standards, 
standardized testing, kind of like how we utilize that in the classroom. I hear a lot of too much data. We're not doing enough with it. What is it? I hear teachers say, I have so many assessments, I don't get to teach them anything. And it's almost like there's like a feeling like, I don't know what to do with it. So because I don't know what to do with it, I it, it frustrates me. And it doesn't help me. It's not making any difference to me. So it's one more added layer of bureaucracy that I just want to get out of my way. I'm trying to teach. I think one of the philosophies that I see as being very, very prevalent, though, is this idea in, in science people, you know, we have an understanding that people are going to naturally kind of like, some people are going to get hundreds, 99s, 98s, sort of distribute like that. And I think that there is a sense that the data is something that can't really be impacted by the classroom teacher, because, you know, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, certain percentage of your students are always going to fall into that bottom percentile, whether that be because they're coming to you with such large knowledge gaps or because they're just not trying or because that's just nature, you know, it's the normal curve, it's natural statistics. There's not a large buy-in to the idea of how much impact the teacher actually has on, on that data when it comes to all students must succeed. You know, like, no, that's not possible. All students will not succeed. You're always going to have your bottom 20%. To me, when I think about it, I always think of that normal distribution is going to be over a large amount of people. So there are going to be those kids on the bottom, but that's not always going to be represented in a, in a single teacher's classroom. So that one teacher could have 30 kids who are all getting it, right? I mean, in an individual sample, we should be able to bring everybody up. But, you know, I mean, you kind of take that to the larger scale and you say, well, if every single teacher brought everybody up, would that really be possible? Of course, you know, yeah, it would be. Well, I mean, it would be. I mean, I guess it's just that your bottom 20 percent, your your definition of what constitutes the bottom 20 percent would be up. Right. Okay. So it's like if the bottom 20 percent is like reading a 99 is reading at a fourth grade level in high school maybe we could get the bottom 20 percent to be reading at a at a sixth grade level in high school that seems to me like a goal that we we kind of need to focus on it's not so much that we need to get everybody going to a ninth or tenth grade level in high school but we've got to have our bottom 20 percent not be a fourth grade leading reading level i mean what do you what do you think what is the bottom 20 percent reading level in a high school do you think oh gosh it's probably worse than that i mean i don't know honestly i mean I, i've worked in what three three schools so uh, you know to me in the last school we were at a fourth grade reading level was actually like you know pretty average right that wasn't the bottom uh, for here, I would say probably that's about that's about right for the, the bottom. bottom. I would say I would say the bottom ten percent is around there. I'd say our bottom twenty percent is probably hovering somewhere in the intermediate age, like sixth, seventh grade, probably. But our ten percent is definitely down there. Um, they started struggling when um, when the switch from learning to read happened. Uh, when they started having to read to learn, that never really happened for them. So they're still trying to decode what we're giving them. They don't have the vocabulary to be able to read it, and it's basically like giving a chemistry textbook to a fourth grader. I think we need to think about our goals as being not so much 
you know, to get everybody to an 80%. But just the idea of shifting that curve over to where the bottom 20% is not in such a such a quagmire, you know, like, that's not a goal. It's like, oh, and I think, you know, we and I had this conversation when we're we're looking at the the normal curve for English and or the reading. It's like, well, look, it's normal. It's normal for 20% of your students to to fail because that's so that's okay. We're doing okay. It's like, well, no, I mean, that's not great, right? I mean, especially when we're talking about these standardized testing that are standard, right, should be able to not fall below a certain level. Does right, the standardized sense? test is supposed to be representative of the minimum that a kid should be able to do at a certain level in high school or in middle school or in elementary school, right? So so to, to get to the point where we're like, oh, 20% failure, that's a normal thing, yeah, I, I, I strongly disagree with that because to me, the data is used not for this big viewpoint where we can say, okay, we're going to expect 20% to fail. The data is there to, to help me identify those kids that I need to and show where they can move to in a certain amount of time. So if I have kids that are all spread around that normal distribution curve, I don't want my kid at the top not moving but I also don't want my kid at the bottom not moving. So I've got to differentiate for each of those levels of kids, and that's how I use data. If we're, if we're shifting the curve to the left, that should make everybody everybody go up. But in reality, you know, that's always going to be there. It's just a question of, like, how high is the top going to be? So right. that the, 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 the bottom 20% is still a, a great source of achievement. Yeah, I want that. Uh, my goal is to get that 20% to the point where they are at least over that that really basic, I'm sorry, it's, it's a basic finish line right there. And to me, the only way that that even seems achievable is to meet the kid where they are and to be able to meet the kid where they are dang it, I need to be able to know where they are, right? And I can't do that without tracking their data. So Stephanie, I'm going to take an opportunity now to talk to you from the perspective of a first-year teacher, because for those of you who didn't listen to our last podcast, my role has changed. And in addition to doing the normal kind of intervention work that I've done, I'm also now teaching one section of AP chemistry, which is really changed up my my whole world. And I feel like a first-year teacher in so, so, so many ways. And I am identifying very strongly with a lot of the struggles that our our teachers have. And I've had a couple of thoughts that have come into my mind. And as a first year teacher, how valuable is the data of my predecessor to me? How valuable is the data of my school? How valuable is the data of the nation? As a first year teacher, how valuable is that data to me, really? What do you think? I've been tracking our overall school reading scores through a screener, right? And it's interesting because we are going through the results. We're starting to develop um, enough data so that we can have these cohorts and we can track the cohorts. And the, the honest truth is, I don't know if you can, as teachers, compare this year's sophomores to... You can't say, okay, our kids got this score this year, so we're hoping that next year it's going to be even better, right? Because this is a whole new set of kids. So you can't expect them to be better if they started so much further behind than the last group of kids. But at the same time, if they're already better than that last group of kids, to get them better just by that one percentage point wouldn't be that big of an accomplishment. So if, if, you were, if I was to say, can I, can I show any sort of change from my predecessor to now. 
it, could the data reflect that? I don't think so because you're dealing with a different population of kids, right? And, and you yourself are completely different. I mean, right. there's too many variables with this with this content area. I mean, and all of us will all agree, you know, whatever content you teach, I think it's probably universal to say you feel more comfortable with certain aspects of your content than you feel with other aspects of your content. And I think like the content areas that you feel more comfortable with that you are more well versed in, I mean, those are going to be the areas in which your students are going to do better. You know, so like if last year's students really tanked thermochemistry, but thermochemistry happens to be like your particular layer of interest, and your kids are going to do better there, right? So if I'm a first year teacher, what kind of trends and what sort of information can I take, should I take, should I use? What can I do and how can I filter that through the lens of, of myself and what it is that I'm going to do? To me, and, it's, I mean, it's sample size. I mean, you okay, so if I were to look at the state of Texas, I could definitely look at some trends and growth that we're seeing. But if I'm looking at a school, I think it's too much, too small. And if you're going to a classroom level, that's even that's even more limited. So comparing that kid to themselves, to me, it's it's pretest, post-test. Like you're showing, this is what they knew before the lesson, and the lesson is that change, that variable. And then you're you're studying. This is what they know after that lesson. Did did I notice a change due to the variable that was changed? If you have a high stakes test or high stakes exam at the end of your course, you can look at the large scale nationwide thing and kind of make inferences about how difficult yeah. the content questions are. You know, so if you're seeing like with AP, large, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, if you're seeing a large section of students failing, that probably tells you more about the difficulty level of the question than it tells Very you about the individual teacher. pedagogy. You know what I mean? So, I mean, you can kind of start learning your test and making sure that you're, you know, if you have a high stakes test at the end of your class, just make sure that you're you're using your data to understand and break apart your test so that you have that end in mind when you're, when you're designing your instruction. So you're saying, okay, well, I know that I'm going to need to test this concept at a much higher level of rigor than I'm testing this other concept. Right. So perhaps the more national data for a first year teacher who doesn't know how they're going to teach their class, the national data gives you more insight is t into maybe like your level of rigor that you're going to be spending on, on your different concepts. I think that's a really strong reflection that we need to do. The problem with a lot of these tests is they come at the end of the year. So the impact is never felt with that group of kids that you've got right there. And that's why I like in the classroom data tracking right there, uh, real time basically, like like the, the, the show 24's version of of data tracking but that reflection afterwards like if, you know if, if that test had like a lot of people were passing that one standard and then you've got your kids and they just bombed it well that says something about whatever you are doing to get them to understand that standard but that's that's something that's not going to necessarily help those kids right now and that's the problem with being a first-year teacher in something is just that inability to to you know you don't automatically know it's so difficult Stephanie to not know what your students are thinking like that is something that I have just taken mm -hmm. for granted the last 12 years like I just know what they're thinking I know what they know I know what they don't know I understand what's going on in their heads and now you know they're all opaque to me and it's like I, I give exams and I read what they say and then I'm like oh now I see That's what you're what not they oh, okay you know and then I, I move forward from there but you know as the first year teacher your your data gathering is so crucial and vital for you to learn 
what kind of teacher you need to be. As a first year teacher, the data gathering, it's not even for the students at that point. I mean, it is 100% for you so that you can start tailoring, you know, who you are and the way that you run your lessons and, and what things you say and what things you don't say. And so if you're at an advanced level of data gathering, then I definitely think that, you know, you need to put the, um, you need to put the data in the students' hands and the students need to be interacting with that data and the students need to be, you know, student data folders, all of those fantastic things. But I have to tell you, Stephanie, as a first year teacher, I am finding all of that way too overwhelming for me. I'm yeah. just not, I'm not able to do that. I don't think that I have the knowledge and the know-how with, with the standards and with the class and with, with what is required on the tests and all of that for me to even format their data folder correctly, for me to even guide them in that way. And so like, I am definitely gathering data on my kids, but it's like, I'm kind of keeping it all for myself and I'm using it in my own mind to be like, okay, well, here's how I'm going to, how I'm going to learn from this. So I think if you are a first year teacher or you're new into the data world, I think you should feel empowered to start doing data tracking just with yourself and just keep it, just keep it to yourself. Don't necessarily worry about diving all in into the student folders and student ownership of the data and all that, because you've got to learn how you want to use the data and how the data is useful to you as a teacher before you can really see how the data is going to be useful for them as a student. As a veteran teacher, we have the ability to be more proactive when we're working with things, but I remember being that beginning teacher and everything was very reactive. But I think that the data, just by tracking that piece in your classroom, even for you, can help you become more responsive as opposed to reactive. Because we don't want to be um, constantly waiting for the ball to drop until we realize that something is happening. But using that data can help you start making some of those choices that you can make some moves or make some small changes here and there to respond to what the kids are doing. Right. And so from my perspective now of being a very experienced teacher, being a first year teacher, working with intervention, and now working with high level kids, and you do one thing to change your data data gathering this year, what it needs to be is move away from the average assessment score. That average assessment score is basically useless when you are working towards achievement. You just cannot report your scores that way, either to yourself or to your students. You have got to have your scores reported in terms of learning objective, in terms of rigor, that would be fantastic if you could report it in terms of rigor, in terms of standard, whatever. But a student receiving a score of an 80 on a test is just not useful to you. It's not useful to them. And that is the number one thing that I think all of us can do to make ourselves just be a lot, a lot better of a steward of our data. So explain to me, like, I am a first year teacher and I want to do what you're just saying. Break down a step-by-step I have a test that I've given. How many standards should be on that test? How do I then break that down so that I can track that data so that I'm not giving them some big average score that might hide the things I don't know, but diminishes the things that I am doing well. So I'm also the um, level lead for chemistry this year. And so we are trying level wide. We're trying a new a newly formatted score report on our common assessments. So they are still going to get an average score because students are not going to be willing to give up on that. When they get the score report, they still have their average score, but then 
they also have the standards or the objectives that were on that test. And as to how many standards are on a test, I really feel like that is something that's going to vary based on content and that is going to vary based on the exam that you give. The only thing that I think really shouldn't vary is that for each standard, there needs to be at least three questions, three or four questions. There doesn't need to be more than that. You don't need to have 10 questions per standard, but you know, three or four questions on a standard. That way it's not possible for a kid to get a zero, a 50 and a 100. You've got to have some sort of spectrum in there on, on which that they can fall. You know and then I mean? should I use like different depths of knowledge on those questions or should they all be around the same level of difficulty? Yeah, I think that's that would be fantastic. Like if you would have a way and I, we don't have a very easy way to code the questions based on, on depth of knowledge in our um, in our database have a way to print off like score report that would show you although that would be something that would be fantastic to do it would be a very labor intensive on us to do that score reporting on every single one of our students i know we got time for that that's something that's not gonna happen (laughs) but what we did to overcome that idea is we have picked our power standards and our goal is that for these power standards the rigor levels of them are going to go up on every single assessment so the the standard is appearing on every assessment and every time it appears it's going to be at a higher um at a higher depth of knowledge so at least for those we're going to be able to see you know a score either going up or going down to see how they're responding to the different levels of rigor but yeah i mean i Ideally, yes, you would have level one, level two, level three questions and all that, but yeah. Well, here's a I question. Um, how, so if you are, and this is a question that someone broached with me about our screeners. Um, if, if you are uh, steadily increasing the level of rigor of the standard and then you're doing data tracking, doesn't that change the data? Because if you're steadily getting harder, then you wouldn't necessarily see an increase because to be on the same level every time would be its own increase, right? Right, right, yes. And that would be something that you'd have to, yeah, would have to be explained to the students. That's absolutely correct. You shouldn't have students, if you're doing one standard throughout the whole year and and you're getting 100% on every, I mean, that's not really, you're not challenging the student. You're not actually seeing growth. That's a really good point. If they're getting 100% the whole way through, what, what are you doing? Ha- what are you doing? That like as a kid, I thought getting 100s was awesome, right? You know, I think I'm good at everything, but maybe I'm just not getting the work at the level I needed it to be because right. what happens when I have all those 100s and then I go to college is right. I yep. implode because the level yep. of rigor has just shot up through the ceiling and I'm not prepared for it. And I don't have any skills to emotionally deal with it. And I don't have Mm -hmm. any skills to actually attack that difficult work. And the response is just to give up because I have no idea how to remediate myself or how to increase how much I study. I don't have any skills. Being here teaching a junior, senior AP class, I've been thinking about that a lot. You know, the idea of of giving them a safe place to fail and a safe place to be challenged so that when they get to college, they don't just have the smiles wiped right off their faces. Which is kind of what happened to me my first year of college. It happens to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I think it does. Pretty sure it happens to everybody. As our wrap up, can I maybe share uh, something that I do every single time we're finishing up a lesson? So maybe we can end today's with a wrap up. 
So our wrap up is they write wrap on the side of their notebook and W stands for what am I wondering about or what do I want to know? So this is kind of trying to build that curiosity. And then the R would be like, what's one thing I want to remember from today that is like absolutely gonna stick in my brain? A is for what I need assistance with. What am I not getting? And then P, what's my plan to have someone help me with that? Who am I gonna go to? Uh, when am I gonna go to that person? What do I need to bring for tomorrow so that I can make sure and have that taken care of? So it's wondering about, remember, assistance with, and then plan. You wanna do that? Okay. I'm, I'm wondering I'm, about everything in my life. <laughs> okay, well, let's not get existential or anything like that. Like, let's narrow it down to what we talk about. Like, what are we still wondering about data? To me, a lot of the things that we talked about, I've been doing. So I think I think this would be a good one for you because you are in a new position. So what are you wondering about when it comes to your chemistry class? Well, how new teachers keep in this profession? Like, what the heck? <laughs> how do they come back? It's too much work. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> why is the why turnover is this, rate not is, so much this higher? Like, this me? is an absurd amount of work. <laughs> Hard being a first year teacher, yo. Yes, it is. I feel you. Absolutely, out there. yo. Absolutely, yo. Okay, so for me, I want to remember one thing, and I want to remember that I have to be able to cut myself a break when it comes to tracking this. I can't necessarily track everything that my kids are doing. So I like when we talk about the power standards, making myself focus and I'm trying to remember, I'm only focusing on these five things this year. I have to get them all on these five things. What about assistance? What would you like help with? Are you, are you kidding me? Everything. <laughs> Have I not? Did I not just say questioning all my life choices? <laughs> Please don't quit. Don't leave me here. Please don't go into the business world. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, for me, like, again, because I do feel so much like a first year teacher, I mean, for me, the assistance part is it's so difficult kind of coming in blind to everything and trying to figure out how to know what's expected to you of you and how to know where your kids are and that sort of thing and the only thing to do like you always point out to me was eat the elephant one bite at a time so that's your plan yeah just take it slow and just give yourself a lot of grace you don't have to do everything right now it's hard to eat an elephant while looking graceful but if anyone can pull it off sarah i bet it's gonna be you (laughs) i need to go on a diet (laughs) (laughs) an all pachyderm diet (laughs) no a zero pachyderm diet i gotta get some of this elephant off my plate (laughs) but yeah i mean for me like the assistance part for me is is give myself give myself grace and realize that it's not going to be it's not going to be beautiful and exactly the way that I would like 15 years into this. It's right. gonna, it's not going to be this way, you know, and it's just something I can do about that. So just understand every day you're just doing the best that you can and you're getting better every day. I think a first year teacher needs to expand their idea of a year. I think a first year teacher needs to realize that that first year is going to probably be two or three years. And then after three years, if you really are done with it, then be done with it. But but yeah, give yourself a break, give yourself some time because this job is probably the most insane job for the lowest amount of pay that anyone could create. It's but insane. I will say, after you've been doing it for like 10 or 12 years, it gets so easy that you forget. So yeah. just hang in there for like 10 years and you'll be fantastic at this. <laughs>
Until any someone makes you teach chemistry. <laughs> any minute. Any now. minute now it's gonna get easy. I'm looking. I'm looking at my clock. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we're back. Yes, absolutely. And um, please, if you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to us on Stitcher. Hey, send us an email and let us know that you're uh, not a robot. Because zero one one zero 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 one one zero. It, the podcast is going to become a lot of that if you don't, <laughs> and I really do not underestimate Stephanie's ability to commit to a bit. I so will commit. <laughs> reach out. Let us know what's up, and if there's anything, any questions you have or anything you'd like us to expand on, we'd love we'd love to hear about it. If, if not, you can follow us on uh, realtalkintervention.blogspot.com, Twitter, or Facebook. We are out there, and again, we love uh, likes and subscribes and reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and we will uh, be back in October with a brand new a brand new plan and hopefully back to our bi-monthly schedule of recording. Thank you and goodbye.